In today's episode, we're going to talk about suicide prevention as it relates to abuse. It's Elegant Granny and I need your help. I am asking you to help me with my fundraiser through the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You can help me raise funds by clicking the AFSP Donor Drive link in the show notes, the blog, or my link tree. Thank you in advance. Your support is greatly appreciated. Peace and blessings, everyone. This is Elegant Granny, your creator and host of the Proactive Eye Podcast. Last week's episode was about financial abuse, and we discussed what it is, how the abuser uses it to control the victim, and I also disclosed my personal experience as a victim of financial abuse while I was married. If you missed that episode, you can click on the last week's link in the show notes and also on the blog. This week, we are discussing the dynamics of suicide prevention as it relates to abuse. I'll start by quoting Dr. Richard McKeon, Chief of the Suicide Prevention Branch at the U.S. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. In an article by the American Psychological Association, Dr. McKeon says, survivors of intimate partner violence are twice as likely to attempt suicide multiple times. He also points out cases of murder-suicide are most likely to occur in the context of abuse. Now, when I first read this, it hit me right in my core. I never imagined someone losing hope and never seeing their way through a situation during or after a life of abuse that ideation of suicide would ever enter into their mind. This is why I included on my podcast. This is a public health concern as a result of the abuse some victims and survivors see as a means to an end of something traumatic for them. It really pains me that people out here feel this way. Now, as for some interesting yet alarming research under the direction of Tony Salvatore at Montgomery County Emergency Service in Norristown, Pennsylvania, Female victims with a chronic illness or disability who experience intimate partner violence have an increased risk of threatening or attempting suicide. Women who undergo such abuse, particularly sexual, may exhibit suicidal ideation. Battered females seeking care in emergency departments likely have histories of this behavior. Medical personnel in those facilities should ask domestic domestic violence patients about suicidal thoughts. As a group, African-American women show a comparatively low risk of suicide. However, intimate partner violence more than doubles the risk of attempt when experienced by low-income African-American females. This appears related to hopelessness, spiritual malaise, weakened self-efficacy, and coping and a perceived lack of support by family, members, and friends. Limited studies of Asian and Asian American elders uncovered a link between this abuse and suicidal behavior. 
Koreans over 65 years old exposed to family violence exhibited a higher risk of suicide than those never abused. Strong suicidal ideation existed among victimized Chinese persons aged 60 and older, as well as elderly abused Chinese women in the Chicago area. Now, this is something I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think this article was written back in 2018, which was just a couple of years ago. He goes in further into saying elderly victims usually come from couples in their 80s. These situations may involve a long-term abusive relationship or one that became so when the care needs of one partner burden the other. Typically, the murder-suicide perpetrators include depressed adults or elderly males who have access to a firearm and serve as the main caregiver for a dependent spouse with new or worsening health problems. Here are some of the things that put victims and survivors of abuse at risk of suicidal ideation. Exposure to repeated physical, psychological, or other abuse may cause victims to experience depression, psychological distress, and hopelessness. In turn, such individuals sometimes become apathetic about themselves and indifferent toward living, perhaps to the point of considering or inflicting harm upon themselves. This represents the basic premise of the interpersonal psychological theory of suicide, which proposes two prerequisites for a potentially fatal attempt. The first one being a strong desire to die, and the second one, the capability for lethal self-harm. People may consider suicide when they feel that they do not belong and subsequently lose their sense of meaning. In these cases, individuals consider death more valuable than life. Such a failed sense of belongingness flows from persons' unmet need for social relationships and a perception that people they care about do not feel the same way. Victims' feelings of disconnectedness increase as they become isolated from family and friends. A weakened personal network, poor social functioning, excuse me, poor social functioning, decreased self-sufficiency, and increased dependence all accompany intimate partner violence. Suffering humiliation, ridicule, or neglect can deplete self-worth and further drive social isolation. Such victimization runs counter to the need to belong and feel valued. When this goes unmet, a passive desire for death may arise. Further, family con conflict and functional impairments frequently accompany domestic violence. Either or both may produce a sense of imposing a burden upon others and perceive lack of purpose. Individuals in adulthood and the golden years who expect social and financial autonomy may find such dependence on others intolerable. Moderate suicidal ideation may arise as individuals continue to experience both psychological pain and hopelessness. The progression to stronger suicidal ideation results from further loss of connectedness with other people, social roles, interests, and sense of meaning in life as well as a continued feeling of burdensomeness. Suicide risk among those reporting domestic violence 
also may be linked to when this abuse finally comes to light. Few victims report that in excuse me, few victims report their initial domestic victimization with with most not doing so until they have endured multiple assaults. Therefore, any report probably indicates a long history of violence. Also, this suggests that law enforcement officers may be the first responders to encounter victims with a high suicide risk. Officers sometimes may hear suicide threats from the abuser who may use them to coerce, control, or frighten the victim, particularly if the relationship likely will end. Such behavior frequently occurs before court appearances related to the abuse. Now I'm going to go into my personal experience when I showed up to the emergency room or emergency department, as some people call it, um, to report that I had ran away from my husband and I was not returning home until it was safe or I was placed somewhere safe. And so they whisked me to the back. That way I was away from anyone who would know me or anyone who would see me and report to him that they saw me there. So they whisked me to the back and began taking my vitals and um, asking me, you know, what happened. So I began to tell them what happened. And I first asked for a forensics nurse. And please, for those of you who do decide to go and be treated, if you run away, what will help you, especially if you end up in court, what will help you greatly is by getting to the emergency room, specifically ask for a forensics nurse, because what will happen is there is um, special testing and special questions she would ask you. Um, and there are also photographs that she would take everywhere that the abuser has touched you. If there are any markings or bruisings or, or anything like that, they will take photographs and that will help you with your case. One of the things that I remember them doing is something that I wrote down here, things police and emergency department do to help. They have these suicide risk screening tools and domestic violence lethality screenings for first responders. And what that means is the first test is a suicide risk screening tool. And what they do is they ask you different questions. And they, they periodically, they'll ask you, have you had thoughts of suicide or had you even, um, try to do any activity of that would relate you know the activity the behavior to suicide and so i remember the nurse repeatedly asking me different questions she would leave and go to other questions and then come back and ask me those and i asked her i said is this something routine that y'all have to ask us and she said, yes. I said, I said, because the first time I went to a hospital, which wasn't in the same state, it was before we moved back home. They never asked me those questions, but I never told them what happened. They did try to find out 
if I was being harmed and I told them no. Um, but they, they do ask you that. The second um, testing or tool that they use, the domestic violence lethality screening, um, they will ask you different questions and what they're actually doing is there is a scale that they use to see, depending on what you answer to the questions asked, they will know if if how lethal it is for you to go back home. And in my case, it was on the extreme severity side. I was um, recommended to not go home, to not get back with him, which I had already made up in my mind that I was never going back to him. And I had already called my mother before I got to the emergency room. And I told her, I'm going there. And I'm going to request for the cops to come. I want to see a forensics nurse. And I will not leave until they tell me that he either he's picked up or they have somewhere else safe for me to go. So that's what happened. Um, now, the forensics nurse asked me those same questions that the cops asked me. When the assigned officer came in, the exact same lethality lethality screening that she performed on me is the same one that he did. So you get that same thing twice. I score I scored the same thing both times. I even tried to change my answers, um, and I still depend because. The reason why I scored the same thing is because of the questions they asked me, even though they were asked a little bit different, I still gave the same answer. And so I scored very severely fatal. And I knew I was. I knew I was. So I had already um, arranged for not to go back to the house. My niece was waiting there. Um, waiting for everything to get done. It was like seven o'clock the next morning before I left. And I had gotten there a little bit after 11 the night before. And so um, it took a while. It did. It took a while. And I was kind of glad that they did those tests. And even though at the moment when you're going through that, it does not feel good being asked those questions. It does not feel good being asked if you're having suicidal ideation because at the moment, at that time, your only thought is, how am I going to get away from him? I'm going to stay away from him. Will he figure out that I'm at the hospital? What's going to happen? All of those thoughts are going through your mind. Well, put it like this. That's what was going through my mind. Suicide was the furthest thing from my mind. And um, to this day, I've never had suicidal thoughts, but I do feel for those who have, and I feel for the family and loved ones who have lost someone to suicide because they didn't see a way out of an abusive situation. It's very sad to think that that was the only thing that they could come up with. But people don't realize when you are alone, 
and you're closed off because a lot of times you are isolated. No family or friends are able to get to you because you're going through different types of abuse, not just um, physical abuse. You're going through emotional abuse, intellectual abuse. You're going through financial abuse, spiritual abuse, all of those things. Um, and it's very heavy. It's a very heavy weight. And you really, it's really hard to see on the other side of what's going on, especially when there are children involved. Some people with children, they can make it through and some cannot. So I just wanted to share a little bit of my experience of the testing that I had to go through with um, suicide ideation, although I didn't have any, but they had to make sure because it, the reason why they're doing it is because that number of people being lost to that as a result of abuse is rising. And so that's the reason why they have these tests. And I'm glad they did. At the time, I didn't like it. But again, like I said, I'm glad they're doing it. Hopefully, I have said something in this episode to help you understand the dynamics of suicide prevention as it relates to abuse. You are a great asset in this world, and it is especially important after a life of any form of abuse to see a physician and a mental health specialist to help you excel as you recover. Let a granny know in the voice message feature or by email at proactiveeye at gmail.com some things you do to help you recover. I would love to hear your story and get your perspective on why those things are valuable to you. If you are a concerned citizen and would like to know more about how to support victims and survivors of abuse, follow the links in the show notes or on the blog as your guide. Feel free to email me at proactiveeye at gmail.com with comments, questions, or concerns you would like addressed. It has been a pleasure sharing with you today. All links to connect with me and free resources are in the show notes. Feel free to download episodes and take advantage of the free resources provided. You can visit the Proactive Eye blog at bit.ly forward slash PE podcast blog. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash PE podcast blog. You can also connect with Proactive Eye on Instagram and Twitter. The handle is at Proactive Eye. And also on Facebook, the handle is at Proactive Eye podcast. This has been your host, Elegant Granny. Thank you for your support and visit again. And remember, healing is a continuous process, not a one-shot deal. Much love, peace, light, and healing vibes, family. Stay tuned next week as we discuss what to do if you feel someone is having suicidal thoughts.